Thank you so much for having me. Um, so my talk today is going to be about sudden cardiac death in the young athlete, um, something that I have a particular interest in, uh, something I've been researching for a while and, and something that has always been pretty close to me. Um, just a reminder that I am a pediatrician first and foremost. So even though you'll see a lot of um, Simpsons art and Simpsons stuff in here, uh, try to bring a little bit of levity to a relatively serious topic. So please, if you have any questions, uh, don't hesitate to throw it in the Q&A part. Um, hopefully I'll be able to see it and we'll continue without any glitches, uh, but I'll get started here. Got a lot of slides, so I apologize. At some points I might go a little bit quick, but I'll try and save five minutes towards the end uh, if anybody has any questions about my presentation or cardiology in general. So I uh, do not have any financial disclosures and I did try and embed a YouTube. So let's see if it works. The reason that I wanted to show this clip and hopefully you guys can get the audio as well too. He's in some distress as well, Fabrice Moamba, because you're keen to turn him on his side. The reason that this clip has always stood out to me is well. I actually was watching this game live. It was about a decade ago now. I think it was about nine years ago now. Um, I'm a big uh, English so Premier League fan, so I watch a lot distress. of soccer. Interest of full disclosure, a Liverpool fan. But I, you know, as a resident, I, I believe it was a first-year resident when this occurred, um, didn't quite fully understand what was happening. I could tell something bad was going on. Um, some mystification among some of the players out there as to precisely what led to this? Asking for more details. I have to say this looks increasingly serious. One or two of the bottom players. So Fabrice Mwamba, he was he's now a retired English soccer player and probably have to retire immediately after this. He was very lucky that there happened to be a cardiologist in the crowd. Um, that jumped out of there and actually came to help resuscitate him. Uh, he played for a number of top teams, uh, Arsenal, Birmingham City, Bolton Wanderers. Um, and this occurred, excuse me, in 2012, I thought it was 2011, where he actually had a cardiac arrest mid-game. He was resuscitated for 78 minutes. He received multiple defibrillations. Um, he spent a month in the hospital, but actually has recovered very, very well. Um, he's went on to be kind of a champion for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which he was diagnosed with, um, never was discovered, um, you know, on any pre-screening, he did have to have an ICD implanted, as you can imagine, if you have this sort of sudden cardiac, uh, arrest that's resuscitated, uh, but of course was forced to promptly retire after this incident. Uh, so today I'm just got a little introduction. I'm going to talk a little bit about the epidemiology. Uh, we're going to talk about the etiologies. Um, I'm going to go through kind of the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology, their guidelines, things that they want you to ask, uh, red flags from my perspective. Then I'm going to kind of break down specifically into the causes of sudden cardiac death in our young athletes with uh, spending a, a lot of time on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy because that is by far and away the most common cause. Um, I added in a COVID-19 section because I figured there would be a lot of COVID-19 questions and how that uh, pertains to young athletes. Um, so I can you know, offer you the best evidence-based medicine that we have for that. But uh, I was, can imagine there's not perfect EBM for that. Uh, talk a little bit about EKG screening at the end because that is a very controversial topic as part of pre-participation screening for our young athletes. So sonograic death in the young athlete, is, it's a very rare phenomenon, but it generates a lot of media attention, as you can imagine. So maybe it may feel more common than it really is. Um, Certainly it's more common for sudden cardiac arrest and death in our athletes versus our non-athletes, about a threefold increased risk. And that makes a lot of sense. Athletes, they're engaged in regular physical training. They're simply pushing their heart a lot harder than the kid that's the couch potato that's playing more video games. Most often it's a complication of a ventricular arrhythmia um, thought to be brought on by a number of factors. You likely have some underlying etiology and then mixed with dehydration, hypopyrexia, electrolyte imbalances and possibly increased platelet aggregation as you're working out as well too, and maybe tip you over. The incidence is really across the board. It really depends on where you read. Um, most times I quote somewhere about two to four per 100,000 young athletes, uh, but you can see it higher. You can see it lower depending on where you read. It's more common in males than it is in females. It's more common in our African-American or black athletes. They're the highest ethnic risk 
Um, they're about five to six per hundred thousands, and they tend to die more likely of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is in general the most common cause, but even more common in our young black athletes as well too. Um, it's more common in the high dynamic, low isometric sports. That's football, basketball, soccer, um, just to name the few are the more common ones here in the United States. Once you get beyond age 35, it's much more likely that you're going to die of coronary artery disease than some of the, a lot of the topics that I'm going to focus on today. Um, a little over 30% in retrospective studies. These patients have had documented symptoms such as chest pain, shortness of breath, complaint of performance decline, palpitations, presyncope or syncope. So that's going to be very important as we're kind of screening our young athletes. Um, this is from the NCAA um, for the sudden death and from our NCAA. Um, as you can see, males was about one in 38,000. Uh, black males, unfortunately, is a little bit more common, one in 22,000 or one in you know, 21,491 athlete years. Um, and men's basketball tend to be the highest risk of all the sports, at least as far as sudden cardiac death in NCAA athletes. You know, it's often there's not just one thing going on with these young athletes, um, and there's a lot of overlap. So hypertrophic cardiomyopathy being the workhorse for the cause of some cardiac death, um, that can actually be associated with things like Wolf-Parkinson-White. So you may have a combination of the two. Um, you may have acquired abnormalities like infection. Myocarditis is obviously very pertinent given the world that we live in right now. Um, commotio cordis from trauma, toxicity from drugs, that type of thing. We're gonna spend a lot of time though talking about the structural and electrical abnormalities here. So I'll kind of gloss over that, but it's a lot of overlap. And this is a, just kind of a similar chart as well too, just kind of listing a lot of the etiologies that we'll focus a fair bit on today. Um, something that I don't talk a whole lot about is things like Kawasaki disease, um, which can cause coronary artery abnormalities in children. Um, I don't talk much about that today. And I will not be talking about atherosclerotic coronary artery disease um, as a pediatric cardiologist. That's just something we don't see um, unless you have some sort of familial hyperlipidemia. Uh, but as someone who focuses mostly on athletes less than 21, just do not see a whole lot of that. So certainly a possibility as you get into your young adulthood athletic years, uh, but not in the pediatric age range that I see. So this is a pie chart of um, 14, or excuse me, 1,435 patients that were less than 35 that died from sudden cardiac death um, as a young athlete. As you can see, the pie chart is disproportionately favored towards hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So as I mentioned before, by far and away, the number one cause that you'll see, um, and potentially another 8%. So this pie chart almost eats up about half of that, where there's patients kind of had maybe thickness that didn't quite my criteria, uh, but was very suspicious for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. The second most common cause is coronary artery anomalies, and we'll spend some time talking about those as well too. And then there's just a number of other things, including myocarditis, arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, mitral valve prolapse, abnormal coronary arteries, dilated cardiomyopathy, channelopathies, which get a lot of attention as well too, potentially aortic rupture, usually with some underlying genetic disease state, Marfan's, Ehlers-Danlos, Lowesteeds, those types of things as well too. So the AHA and ACC came up with years ago, a 14 point checklist for pre-participation screening um, so personal history, the big questions that you want to ask are with our young athletes, but you know, it's just good screening in general, any chest pain, discomfort, tightness, pressure related to exertion, uh, unexplained syncope or near syncope that would judged not to be kind of the neurocardiogenic vasovagal origin. Um, usually neurocardiogenic, the kids that, Hey, I stood up, I got dizzy, lightheaded, had a long prodrome, my vision went black. I passed out. A lot of those vasovagal kids, you know, they're, they're combing their hair, they get a shot, um, they get their blood drawn, then they become pale, get dizzy, lightheaded, um, usually again have a much more prodrome. Excessive exertional and unexplained syncope, uh, excuse me, excessive exertional and unexplained dyspnea fatigue or palpitations associated with exercise. So again, very important to ask um, how they feel while they're working out. Prior recognition of a heart murmur. Um, elevated systemic blood pressure can be associated with some types of congenital heart disease. Um, any prior restriction from participation in sports, especially if they've changed primary care providers. Um, any prior testing of the heart ordered by a physician. So you always want to ask, have you had any previous cardiac testing, EKGs, echocardiograms, you name it. Um, the American Academy of Pediatrics also added on any history of hyperlipidemia, um, that you would ask for the personal history, um, any history of heart infections, myocarditis, pericarditis, that type of stuff. 
Kawasaki or unexplained seizures because seizures can be confused um, for syncopal events. Family history questions, um, any premature death, sudden, unexpected, anyone less than age 50 that was attributed to a heart disease um, and one or more relatives, disability from heart disease in a close relative. Um, and I specifically ask, hey, have you ever heard of a cardiomyopathy? So they want you to ask about hypertrophic or dilated cardiomyopathy, um, long QT syndromes, other channelopathies, Marfan syndrome, um, anybody have an arrhythmia in the family? Anybody have cardiac conditions in the family or other family members? American Academy of Pediatrics also likes to ask about short QT syndrome. I mean, I've seen that once in 10 years. Um, it's pretty tough right there. Very uncommon. Brugada, um, catecholinergic polymorphic ventricular tachycardia, CPVT. Uh, heart problems, pacemakers and defibrillators is a question that I like to ask. Any young people with pacemakers and defibrillators because they, families may know that, hey, you know, Uncle Jimmy had a defibrillator since a kid. Uh, don't know why. Um, Fainting, unexplained seizures, or near drowning in other family members. Um, drowning, which I'll talk a little bit more about, can be associated with uh, long QT type 1. On the physical exam, so obviously heart murmur will be extremely important in these patients. Um, and the heart murmurs, you know, that are judged not to be the stills murmur, um, the venous hums of the world, that, uh, they're usually the soft pulmonary flow murmurs that uh, may be benign murmurs, essentially. Uh, femoral pulses would be very important to check because that will help you exclude aortic coarctation. So you should have kind of uh, two plus distal pulses without delay. Um, looking for physical stigmata of Marfan syndrome. So very tall, they have very long fingers. Uh, they usually have poor vision. They usually have kyphosis, scoliosis, um, flat feet. All of those would be physical stigmata consistent with Marfan syndrome. Uh, and they may be more prone to aortopathies. Um, and checking blood pressures in the sitting position. And I like to do at least an upper and lower, um, but usually they like to have you check in both arms. You know, you could do four extremity might be a little bit extreme, but certainly in an upper and a lower, potentially both arms as well too. That's for the AHA and ACC. My personal red flags, I really don't like to hear with my young athletes is exertional chest pain. Um, makes me very concerned. You know, maybe exercise-induced asthma, and exercise-induced asthma is by far and away the most common thing that I see. Got to rule that out. Um, chest pain secondary to a racing heart. Um, I have a lot of nervous, anxious kids. I have a lot of patients with neurocardiogenic syncope um, that have some baseline tachycardia in general. Uh, but if it's going fast enough that it's causing them chest pain, it makes me a little bit more nervous. You know, certainly syncope with exercise or shortly after is a major red flag. I never just chalk that up to dehydration. Um, family history of sudden cardiac death, unexplained deaths, cardiomyopathy, early pacemakers, defibrillators, drownings, deafness, aortic dissection, aneurysm, all makes me very nervous. Um, Self-limiting behavior. So the young athletes that used to play football and, and don't want to anymore, I really like to dive in why exactly that they don't want to play sports anymore um, or decreased exercise tolerance. So now I'm going to kind of talk about the specific causes of sudden cardiac death and go into a little bit into each one of these. So hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, we're going to talk a lot about today because, again, that is the by far and away the most common cause of sudden cardiac death. You know, looking at this picture, it is essentially the, the problem with the obstructive component is you get this very thick asymmetric interventricular septum, and then you're going to have an abnormal mitral valve that's going to cause a subaortic obstruction right there. So it's a disease of the sarcomere, um, and many, I'm sure you remember your sarcomere from med school um, and from your training as well too, but there is just uh, 1,400 mutations at least. It's probably closer to 1,800 now, to be honest with you. Uh, we're learning more and more mutations every day. What makes this disease very difficult is there's significant diversity in the phenotypic, phenotypic expression in clinical course. We know that some genes are certainly more malignant than others, um, and then even if you have that malignant gene, you may never demonstrate the thick or phenotypic expression as well too. And you might just be a silent carrier the rest of your life. In general, they tend to develop left ventricular outflow tract obstruction and that was what causes the notorious murmur. At baseline, this is a diastolic dysfunction issue. So you have a very thick heart that cannot relax and accommodate blood, uh, but usually they have preserved systolic function until the very end when they become what's called an end stage or burned out hypertrophy. Um, that I don't tend to see that in my world. That tends to usually be 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond. Uh, they get myocardial ischemia because the coronaries are an epicardial system on the outside. And you can get some endocardial ischemia, which can be a substrate for fibrosis, uh, which can be a substrate for arrhythmia. 
which we'll talk about. Um, they tend to get mitral regurgitation because they have an abnormal mitral valve, uh, which is also participates in the subaortic obstruction. Um, Hypertrophic hernia myopathy, the, it's likely an underestimate, but the annual incidence is about 0.3 to 0.5 cases per 100,000 children. Um, and the prevalence is about one in 500 in the general population. The peak incidence is interestingly in infants less than one year old. So if you have the gene, the most likely time to manifest the phenotypic expression of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is less than one. Um, and then you see a uh, jump around puberty as well too. So um, seems about age one to 10, most kids will not demonstrate phenotypic expression if they have the underlying genotype. Slight male predominance, as I had mentioned, well, actually I had mentioned that previously, but I had mentioned that it was more common for sudden caric death in athletes. Uh, men tend to have a slightly higher predominance for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy as well, too. Um, slightly more common and uh, ethnic are Black or African-American children than white or Hispanic. And it is by far and away the most common cardiomyopathy, at least pediatric-wise. Presenting symptoms can be across the board, uh, maybe nothing, uh, maybe chest pain, presyncope, syncope, palpitations, nausea, poor appetite, tachypnea, easy fatigability. Unfortunately, sometimes the presenting symptoms can be sudden cardiac arrest or even death. Um, this EPOC study um, looked at a number of cases and they found that um, about 64% of their hypertrophs had chest pain and about 62% had shortness of breath. So those seem to be the most reliable symptomatology. And this has actually been reproduced in other studies as well too. Uh, half of them complained of palpitations of some sort. Um, syncope, which is a major concern, uh, was common in about 20% of them. And uh, unfortunately, sudden death in about 3.4. So a couple of those patients had zero symptoms. Sudden death was their first symptom. On physical exam, you tend to get a, about 70 to 80% will have a murmur. Unfortunately, that means that 20 to 30% may not have a murmur and may have a normal physical exam, which makes catching this disease very difficult for some. Um, you may see it's, you know, the left ventricular outflow tract obstruction, as I mentioned previously, is a combination of the septal hypertrophy and the systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve. And, ah, oh, no, there it is, I was gonna say. So hopefully you guys have heard this song before. This is the Eiley Brothers. And if you guys go to a uh, wedding, you know, you get a little bit, you start crouching down, a little bit softer now, a little bit softer now. I like to think this is how you would do a physical exam for hypertroph, okay? So when you are auscultating them, you have them crouch down and the murmur gets a little bit softer now, a little bit softer now. And then when you have them stand back up, the murmur is gonna get a, bit, a little bit louder now, a little bit louder now. So hopefully that will help you remember and that's how I, I teach a lot of people what you'd expect with a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy murmur. About 70% of patients will have at least about a 30 millimeter gradient, and that's very audible on exam once you get to about 30. That'd be still considered mild stenosis, but very audible on exam. And usually kind of around here, the subaortic position. Uh, the murmur increases with Valsalva and standing, um, and murmur decreases with things like hand grip and squatting, which will both increase your afterload and increase your preload when you squat. The diagnosis is mainly made on clinical suspicion. If you have clinical suspicion, really they need an echocardiogram because that's gonna be the gold standard test. EKGs, I'll mention, they can be helpful, uh, but they're certainly not gonna help you rule out a hypertroph. Um, genetic testing, once you have confirmatory testing. Cardiac MRI, if you're kind of in that in-between gray area where you're thick and you're not entirely sure. Um, Holters, if you're pretty confident they have it, that will help you assess for arrhythmias or routine part of routine surveillance every year just to check because some kids are not aware of ectopy that they may have um, or things like event monitors can be helpful. That's kind of a longer version of a Holter monitor. Exercise stress test can be used for risk stratification. Uh, the cardiac MRI, like I said, kind of for the in-between, but also can help you evaluate for fibrosis um, with delayed gadolinium enhancement. And pretty rarely that you would need a cardiac catheterization unless there's some question of constrictive pericarditis or restrictive cardiomyopathy. EKGs, they're sensitive, but they're not specific. And we've been trying this for a number of years. Um, about 5% of hypertrophs will have a normal EKG. Um, so a lot of them have abnormalities of the EKG, but there's just a number of abnormalities that you can see with this. Um, it doesn't make me feel super assured your negative predictive value as well too, because still missing 5% of hypertrophs makes me very nervous as well too. Um, big things to look for are prominent Q waves in the inferior leads, that'd be like two, three and AVF. Um, and potentially the lateral leads, all that can be signs of septal hypertrophy. 
Enlarged P waves in lead two can suggest atrial enlargement. Again, if you have diastolic dysfunction, you have a hard time filling your ventricles. They're not very compliant. That can cause atrial enlargement. Um, left axis deviation, um, inverted T waves in lateral leads is a major red flag for me. So I got a couple of, sorry, this is the Seattle criteria for the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, and a number of things they look for. T wave inversion is a big thing for me. ST depression, signs of ischemia, um, sinus tack, pathological Q waves, left brain branch block, left axis deviation, um, ventricular pre-excitation or Wolf Parkinson White, as I mentioned earlier, that can be associated with hypertrophs as well as other types of congenital heart disease. PVCs make me very nervous in kids. When you get to adulthood, you can have PVCs. When you're a young kid, I don't like young kids to have PVCs. I feel they deserve a, a proper workout. So this is an EKG. I've got a couple of EKGs from patients of mine as well, too. And I'll just let you take a quick look at it before I kind of bring in some what I want to highlight in this EKG right here. But and ignore my calipers there. Just capture it on here. But what you're getting in is large Q waves here in your inferior leads to lead three. That is a huge Q wave right there, consistent with septal hypertrophy. You get a very big R wave consistent with left ventricular hypertrophy in your V6 sticker. Uh, you have some ST depression and you have a biphasic T wave. Your T wave should always be upright in V6. If it is not upright, that is super abnormal. So if there's nothing else you learn from today, T wave in kids and young athletes, T wave upright in V6 and usually V5. If it is not completely upright, that is signs of a strain pattern and kids should not have a strain pattern unless you know they have underlying congenital heart disease. Uh, here's from another hypertrophy. Again, had very, very big R waves in V6 consistent with ventricular hypertrophy. T wave strain pattern. So looking at that, I'm very, very concerned that this kid would have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or some underlying disease state looking at this. And then this is left axis deviation for another one of my patients right here. So with a predominant R wave in lead one and a small R wave, but a predominant S wave in AVF right there. So EKG screening for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, we are always asked about what about EKG screening? Um, just like EKG screening for our young athletes, it's just not, not there yet. Um, you know, it, there was some automated EKG screening a few years ago. This unfortunately kind of fell by the wayside. We've been trying to come up with algorithms for our EKGs to help us so that we could use EKG as the next initial step. Um, but the moral of the story is we're just not there yet. These studies have not been reproduced, unfortunately. On echocardiogram, I'm looking for wall thickness. Um, greater than 13 millimeters is suspicious. Uh, greater than 15 millimeters really gets you very suspicious. Um, it's specifically basal anterior septum hypertrophy. Looking for cystoscopy anterior motion of the mitral valve, but that's not required for a diagnosis, nor is left ventricular outflow tract obstruction. The gradient can be dynamic. So if you're dehydrated and there's certain maneuvers that I can actually do that during the echocardiogram, that may make the gradient higher. You know, if I have you stand up, if I have you squat, the gradient may be lower. Again, consistent with the murmur, it's consistent with the gradient. So here is an echocardiogram. This is called parasternal long. This is from a patient of mine. So this is the septum right here. So this is the left ventricle. This is the mitral valve. And unfortunately, it froze up on me right here. This is the right ventricle. And this is a very, very thick septum right here. So this is one centimeter right here. Um, this young man's septum is about three centimeters, so it is extremely thick. It's about threefold what you'd expect for septal thickness. Doesn't want to play for me. I apologize about that. So what you see is the stock anterior motion of the mitral valve. Um, the anterior leaflet here is going to be, uh, essentially, it looks like it's going to high five the septum right here. And you're going to see that this is the aortic valve right here. But this is where you're seeing that degree of subaortic obstruction with hypertrophs. This is just a different view called short axis. This is the left ventricle. This is the right ventricle. And this is the septum. Very thick. And if you're looking for it, you can see this is asymmetric. This is a much thicker region than this area, which is the posterior left ventricular wall, which is about 1 cm. This is about 3 cms. Those are your papillary muscles right there. So looking at this asymmetric thickness, this is a, a bad hypertroph right here. This is called uh, apical five chamber. This is your left ventricle. This is your aorta. This is a good view to look for outflow tract obstruction. You can see that basically the septum and the cystoc anterior motion of the mitral valve is causing subaortic obstruction right there. And the color, not the greatest color shot as well too, but 
you're getting flow acceleration and subarea reconstruction right there. Um, about patients have found genetics wise about 30 to 63%, depending on which studies you look at. Um, those patients are the programs, so likely the, or at least the initial discovery. Um, we looked at 84 children that were gene positive, and about half of them were sporadic. So about half of patients that do end up having gene positive will find that they're the sporadic mutation. The other 50% will end up finding other family members that have the gene and that was passed down. Um, other conditions in you know, my world specifically that are associated with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy are Fabry disease, Noonan syndrome, uh, Pompe disease, and I have a number of Pompe patients as well as Noonan patients, fatty acid oxidation deficiency, um, and some of the mitochondrial diseases as well. Screening, this is important. Um, and it seems like this has been not very good lately, in my opinion. All first degree relatives should undergo screening with an HMP, EKG, and echocardiogram. Um, most people recommend screening at age 10. That seems to be most of the consensus in my world, um, you know, or under age one, depending on how quickly you catch this. Uh, and then you should be screened really every year, to be honest with you. And then every five years after age 21. But I have a number of parents who have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Uh, we're totally unaware that their kids need to be screened, especially age 10 to 21, every single year. Um, and then I love to genetically test them because if we're lucky to get a gene in the parents, then we can check the kids. And if they're genetically negative, they don't need to go under, undergo all that screening. Um, one study looked at family members who were gene positive but phenotype negative. Um, so not all of them went on to develop. In fact, less than likely, only 18% went on to develop the actual phenotypic expression, so the thick part on echocardiogram. So even if you test gene positive, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to go and have the manifestations of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So arrhythmias are the major problem with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and with sudden cardiac death in general. They can have atrial and ventricular arrhythmias. Um, the incidence appears to be age-related. The older you get with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, the more likely you are you to have arrhythmia. Non-sustained ventricular tachycardia, that's bad. It's a major risk factor. Um, increases your risk of sudden cardiac death. You, we see a lot of superventricular tachycardias. Um, sometimes your entrance, sometimes AFib, sometimes um, a flutter can be, you name it. Um, atrial fibrillation is not common in pediatrics. So if you see atrial fibrillation, it's usually some underlying disease state. I have seen one atrial fibrillation in about seven or eight years uh, doing this. Um, bradyarrhythmias are rare, but possible. Um, and pharmacological treatments really aimed at symptoms and to improve fun functional capacity and slow disease progression. Um, unfortunately, our antiarrhythmics do not help us prevent fatal arrhythmias. Only ICDs do. So sudden cardiac death for people with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, there's really four major risk factors, um, technically five, uh, depending on where you read. A family history of sudden cardiac death makes me nervous. Um, unexplained syncope makes me nervous. Non-sustained ventricular tachycardia, that's more than three PVCs in a row at a rate faster than 120. Um, massive left ventricular hypertrophy, so greater than 3 cm or 30 millimeters, and that's seen about 10% of HCM patients. Um, and, and then again, exercise stress tests can help you risk stratify if there's any question. And if you have a systolic blood pressure drop, you shouldn't drop your blood pressure when you're exercising. That can be concerning and a risk factor for sudden cardiac death. So this is just a chart looking at the thicker you get, the higher chance of sudden cardiac death right here. So three CMs seems to be that cutoff that we're using as a major risk factor. Basically, if you have one risk factor, you're going to get an ICD. If you have, or if you have one, it's kind of gray area. Most people will do it. If you have two, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You're going to a defibrillator. Um, hypertroph death mortality cause. So, you know, I see mostly five to 15. I do see, you know, up to 25 if you have underlying pediatric issues. Uh, but sudden death is the major issue, you know, usually fatal arrhythmia. When you get older as a hypertrophe, you can get stroke um, and heart failure as well, too. Again, ICD placement, two or more risk factors for sure, but you can consider if you have one high risk factor um, or if you have sudden cardiac arrest, end stage hypertrophes, burned out hypertrophes. Uh, or an apical aneurysm, which is very rare. Treatment, we don't have any randomized control trials. So a lot of this is retrospective um, and trying out. Usually we use beta blockers or calcium channel blockers. Again, for diastolic dysfunction, you slow down the heart rate, you allow for more filling time. So that can help with a lot of the symptomatology. Uh, Renolazine can be helpful for a lot of the kids um, and young adults that have a recalcitrant chest pain. You have a very judicious use of diuretics because you're preload dependent 
seen as you have disolic dysfunction. Septal myectomies um, is something you may have to do if you have significant left ventricular outflow tract obstruction because you really can't address the mitral valve issue. Um, complications, and I'll talk about this in a couple upcoming slides, but it's actually a pretty darn safe uh, procedure. Perioperative mortality is only one to 2%, and I know that seems kind of high, but if you're sick enough that you need a septal myectomy, um, that's actually a pretty good survival rate for that type of surgery. Um, and the longer-term outcomes were excellent, according to a paper published out of Toronto, where they had 338 patients, 98% had no resting left ventricular outflow tract obstruction, um, which was excellent. So, and many of them had class three and class four heart failure. Um, most of them went down to class one or class two heart failure. So um, symptomatology-wise, they did excellent, and most of their gradients had resolved. And they had a lower rate of ICD discharges, so they had less arrhythmia um, after the procedure, which was promising as well, too. Alcohol ablation is another option that you can do um, where you go and basically create a specific infarct going through the coronary arteries. Um, they're both very highly effective. Both uh, had no major difference in long-term mortality, uh, no difference in aborted or sudden cardiac death. Really the only difference, um, and it's a little bit less invasive for the alcohol ablation, uh, but you had a higher incidence of pacemaker for those who underwent alcohol ablation. Sports for hypertrophs. Not much. So billiards, bowling, cricket, curling, golf, riflery. That's about all we allow. Um, for those that are genotype positive, phenotype negative, this is one of the few times that actually Europe is more strict than us. They tend to be more liberal than us. But if you are, oops, excuse me, if you are genotype positive and phenotype negative, so if I, you carry that beta myosin heavy chain gene, if you carry that myosin binding protein, T, uh, protein C gene, uh, but your echo EKG looks perfect, um, we let you play sports still. Close surveillance, because we know that you can manifest it at any time, and you have to have that talk with a young athlete. Hey, you might not be able to play sports the rest of your life, um, but we let you play. Europe does not. All right, now talking about coronary artery abnormalities. Um, there's a number of different abnormalities. You know, With respect to the aortic valve, this is the non-coronary cusp, and then you have the right coronary artery and the left main that gives rise to the left circumflex and the left anterior descending. There are a number of coronary artery abnormalities. I'm not gonna go through all of these. I'm just gonna kind of talk about the real dangerous ones. Um, and that is the interarterial, or basically the ones that run between your pulmonary artery and your aortic artery. Because when you exercise, you increase your cardiac output by up to 50%. And that can pinch off your coronary artery, which can cause transient ischemia, which can cause a transient arrhythmia. That could kill you. Um, so never like to see coronary arteries, specifically the left coronary artery, run between the aorta and the pulmonary artery right there. So this is the left main off the right coronary artery right there. Here is an echocardiogram. And so this is the aorta right here. This is the right coronary artery. And then what you're getting hint of something else coming off of right here. This is the pulmonary artery right here. So this would be that area, that danger area that I just talked about right there. And this is the left main coronary artery coming off of the right coronary artery. So this would be a big no-no. That needs surgical reimplantation because they have a high incidence of sudden cardiac death, particularly when they work out or, or uh, exercise. Um, so it's the second most coronary arteries and artery anomalies are the second most common cause of sudden cardiac death in our young athletes. Um, does not tend to be inherited. Um, coronary artery abnormalities in general are actually pretty common. Most of them are not pathologic. Um, mentioned this already, uh, mentioned this one already as well too, so I'll kind of skip that. Myocarditis, which is obviously very pertinent now in the world that we live in, um, as tends to be about the third most common cause of sudden cardiac death, uh, very common, a viral cause, but myocarditis, inflammation of the myocardium in children is more often acute. Adults tend to have a more chronic course, um, by far and away, most commonly a viral infection, but it can be toxic. It can be autoimmune. That's more often adults, you know, the lupus and those types of things. Uh, it can be renal failure, you name it. Viral, you know, most common still is much more common to be the enteroviruses. Um, they make up by far and away the most common causes of myocarditis. Um, certainly COVID will try and make its way up there. Um, adenovirus does a little bit of everything. Uh, parvovirus, CBV, CMV, herpes virus can all do it. Um, there's a bimolded, bimolded distribution, just like um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, where it's more common in infants and adolescents in the pediatric age range. And its incidence is a little bit less than one per 100,000 children. 
Uh, arrhythmias are really what you get concerned about when you have myocarditis, and about 45% of them will have SVT, VT, or heart block. So if they have myocarditis, you have a reasonable good chance that you have some sort of arrhythmia. Um, myocarditis is very nonspecific. It can be a very difficult diagnosis. About half of patients will complain of chest pain, um, about 28% respiratory distress. Many of them will have GI symptoms, and that's particularly important in uh, COVID. Uh, we'll talk about that here coming up. Potentially hepatomegaly if you have right ventricular heart failure, gallop rhythm with an either an S3 or an S4, um, poor perfusion if you have left ventricular failure, uh, viral prodrome in many of the cases, fever, myalgia, malaise, rhinorrhea, cough, uh, you name it. Physical exam, listen for a gallop rhythm, uh, but can be very difficult to pick up on a physical exam. Possibly new mitral or tricuspid regurgitation, uh, but very unlikely. EKG is not terribly helpful. I look for decreased voltages, but certainly ST changes, T wave inversions would all make me suspicious that the heart is going to some sort of strain issue. Um, on an echocardiogram, I look for left ventricular dysfunction, abnormal chamber shape, mitral regurgitation. Um, cardiac MRIs are probably the very best for this, though, because they can show active inflammation with myocarditis um, and pericarditis as well, too. Excuse me. Um, usually need, if you are diagnosed with myocarditis, you need sports restriction for six months after the onset of disease. Um, transitioning into COVID-19, because I figured there would be some COVID-19 questions, at least as far as a, as a pediatric cardiologist, what I'm seeing in my world and what we're doing. Um, for children, as probably many of you know, COVID-19 seems to be pretty protective. Most kids are asymptomatic or mildly ill. Uh, most common symptoms are fever and cough, but I would also say watch out. We've seen a lot of GI illness anecdotally in our uh, hospital here for the patients and children that have been admitted for COVID-19. Um, they certainly can get the infamous loss of smell or taste. We've seen that with our young teens. Um, labs may include leukopenia, lymphocytopenia, uh, elevated pro-cal, um, and elevated CRP and inflammatory markers with acute infection. Um, there's a thing called multi-inflammatory syndrome which is what has been concerning us the most. It's kind of a similar to a Kawasaki or maybe in a toxic, toxic shock syndrome. Pretty rare complication and it's seen usually in the older children and adolescents. It's more common it seems in black and Hispanic children. Has a lot of similar, similar clinical features to macrophage activation syndrome. Um, often these kids will have a positive serology but negative PCR. So it seems to be kind of like Kawasaki and after some sort of acute insult or something that triggered it. We don't really understand Kawasaki, but it's somewhat presumed that it's potentially a viral infection and then therefore you're predisposed to developing Kawasaki. Symptoms include fevers, GI symptoms, rash, conjunctivitis, so a lot of overlap with things like Kawasaki uh, for three to five days and then potentially shock and multi-organ involvement. Um, they tend to get very elevated um, uh, inflammatory markers with your CRPs, ESRD dimers, um, elevated cardiac cardiac markers, you'll see the troponins and the BNP. Uh, I'm personally not a big fan of troponin in kids unless you have a good suspicion, but this is one of them. This is a very lengthy algorithm. This is on up to date. I'm not going to go through this, but if you need a good algorithm for multi-inflammatory syndrome, um, there's an excellent algorithm on up to date. Um, if you have any concerns for multi-inflammatory syndrome uh, for pediatric patients. Uh, Multi-inflammatory syndrome versus Kawasaki. Multi-inflammatory syndrome tends to be in older children. Kawasaki is usually six months to about five years of age. Uh, this tends to be more in the early teen years, what we have been seeing. More common, again, in the Black and Hispanic population. They get more GI symptoms. Kawasaki, now being a vasculitides, can cause GI symptomatology, can cause some abdominal pain, uh, but certainly seems that the diarrhea and the nausea and that type of stuff is more common in MISC. Um, they have, you know, both have increased inflammatory markers. MISC tends to have very, very increased inflammatory markers. Um, but luckily, most children seem to have fully recovered. Of the 363 cases as of a month ago, or um, the data I was looking at, there was about eight deaths reported from MISC. That number most likely has risen, but I couldn't find any more uh, recent data. Um, Looking at COVID-19 and myocarditis, because this was a big, big hubbubaloo and those who like Big Ten football and that type of stuff. So obviously this was all over the news. Um, this was a study from about a month ago because I'm not gonna talk about the other study that was about three or four months ago. Very similar though, they only looked at 22 collegiate athletes. Most had really mild symptoms. The rest were asymptomatic. Uh, the mean age was about 20 years. They did a cardiac MRI, which is again, the gold standard when you're looking for myocarditis. And about most, the mean age was about 52 days afterwards. 
They did find that one patient had some delayed gadolinium enhancement, suspicious for myocarditis. The other 21 seemed okay. None of them had abnormal troponins, EKGs, and all of them had normal ejection fractions. So the, a lot of questions I've been getting from the primary carers um, is when can kids go back to sports after COVID-19? And obviously there's not a lot of good evidence-based medicine for this. So a lot of this is using, you know, what we feel is the, the best suggestion because a lot of kids wanna play sports right now. Uh, and we have a lot of active sports going on right now. Um, this is an algorithm that was published about two months ago that most of us pediatric cardiologists have been following. Uh, so basically, if you were had a very mild case of COVID-19, um, regular checkup, you're doing fine, you've got no complaints, great. So asymptomatic or very mild symptoms, all right, probably didn't get the myocardial involvement, to be honest with you. If you had moderate symptoms, prolonged fevers, you, you, know, you were laying down, you had bed rest, you just didn't feel good, uh, but weren't hospitalized, um, if you're less than 12, you're probably okay. If you're greater than 12, you probably need an EKG. And if you have a funny EKG, um, you need to come see us and you're probably going to get an echocardiogram. If you were pretty darn sick or certainly if you were hospitalized or if you developed MISC, um, you're getting the whole kink boodle. So you're getting EKG, echocardiogram, Holter, because worried about arrhythmias, uh, potentially a stress test, cardiac MRIs, um, very common for these patients as well too. So again, it really depends on the severity of symptoms uh, for patients that have COVID-19. This is from the United Kingdom, and they didn't specify in this study elite athletes, uh, but this is what they're doing in the UK. Uh, basically, they're a little bit more aggressive. They do a lot more EKGs and echocardiograms um, for their basically most of their athletes after COVID-19. I don't know the right answer uh, for this. Um, I, I could go either way on it, to be honest with you. Uh, they do a lot of chest x-ray and lung function as well, too, depending on how sick you were as well as a number of other biochemistry markers, looking at troponins, D-dimer, CRPs, if you're hospitalized, but we've been doing a lot of that similar type stuff as well too. Uh, PET scan, more common in the UK than what we're doing here. Um, okay, I'm gonna speed up a little bit because of some of the lesser causes. So ARVC, I have about three or four of these patients. Um, so arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy um, or arrhythmic right ventricular uh, dysplasia, whatever you wanna call it. Um, often it's a desmoplakin issue, but it can essentially it's a cardiomyopathy that can cause a fatal arrhythmia. Uh, the prevalence is about one, two to 5,000 is very common in Northern Italy. Um, it's usually a desmal, desmosomal protein abnormality, um, that leads to fibrofatty replacement of the right ventricle, dilation, dysfunction, and aneurysm. Uh, they have a significantly increased risk of sudden cardiac death during exercise. So they're very, very dangerous during exercise. Their symptoms can be palpitations, syncope, atypical chest pain, dyspnea, right ventricular failure. Um, diagnosis, echocardiogram can be very helpful here. Cardiac MRI would be the gold standard for this, uh, but obviously much more difficult and time consuming to do a cardiac MRI than is an echocardiogram. EKGs, they have a very unique EKG finding, which I'll show here in a second. Uh, looks very similar to Brugada. They can get uh, so an epsilon wave, a little bit of what looks like J point elevation but can be very difficult to distinguish from a Brugada type pattern. Looking here now at some of the channelopathies, uh, as well as presume that sometimes when you have a normal heart and you have an autopsy of a cardiac death, it's thought that maybe you had a channelopathy because we don't always test for this. Long QT syndrome is probably the one that gets the most uh, notoriety. So there's many, many types of long QT syndrome. I threw up the three most common up here. Um, so type one, type two, type three. Um, channelopathy, so it's usually a loss of function, potassium channel uh, issue, or a gain of function sodium channel, where basically then you can't repolarize in a timely fashion. Type one, most commonly exercise, particularly swimming. Swimming seems to be a, tr a big trigger. So anyone gets pulled from a pool, drowning, you know, Uncle Jimmy was a wonderful swimmer. I don't know what happened. He drowned. Makes me nervous. Um, long QT type two is more likely emotional stress. They have more of a bifid uh, T wave. And long Q type three, uh, you're more likely to die in your sleep. Here's an example of a just grossly long, uh, you know, the T wave is almost going uh, to the next P wave right here. It's by far and away. So there's a thing called the 50% rule. Um, that is just a, if you're eyeballing it quickly, please don't use that rule as a cutoff. But the T wave really should end by the time you're 50% between your two R waves right there. This T wave ends way, way closer to this next R wave right here. 
Um, but I recommend that you calculate a QTC on all EKGs. The, e, the computer is not good at calculating QTCs. They do a very poor job. Um, and every EKG that I personally read, I calculate a QTC on. Wolf Parkinson White is a uh, potential arrhythmic substrate as well too. Um, it's not usually the reentrant SVT that will kill you though, um, though that is the most likely arrhythmia where they go into a narrow complex SVT. Wolf Parkinson White is characterized by three findings on an EKG, the short PR interval because you bypass the Avino that normally slows it down. So often your P wave will start very quickly into ventricular depolarization. They get the slurred upstroke known as the delta wave because of the slow myocardial um, electrical activity. And then they get a wide QRS as well too. They, and this is an example of Wolf Parkinson White, where you can see your P wave immediately ending in, in a huge delta wave right there. Uh, but short PR interval, wide looking QRS, very classic for Wolf Parkinson White. Um, and this is what kills them. So wolves, for whatever reason, seem to be more predisposed to AFib, even in the pediatric age range. So if you ever get wide, complex, and irregular, be worried about a wolf and an AFib. So you, you don't want to vagal down. You don't want to give these patients adenosine. They need shock out of this. So that's a wolf and AFib, and that is what they die from. They go AFib into VFib. Brugada, not something I see a whole lot in my world as a pediatric cardiologist. Presenting symptoms can be sudden cardiac arrest or syncope. Um, but it can predispose you to ventricular uh, V-fib. Fever tends to exacerbate symptoms. So in my young teens that have this, uh, we try and control their fevers. Um, not necessarily, we don't really know if that truly helps. But in an EKG, you get kind of the abnormal um, V1, V2, V3 findings. And it can differ depending on what you're looking at as well too. But again, with the kind of J-point elevation that can somewhat look like ARVC. So screening, EKG screening, this has been debated till the cows come home, continues to be debated. Um, pros, you reduce the risk of sudden cardiac death in high prevalence population. You can catch EKGs itself are very cheap. They're easy. You can get them done anywhere. You can get them done at the uh, fire station. Um, Prouses, the false positive rates are still pretty high um, and cost because the false positive rate leads to a lot of extra cardiac testing, a lot of echocardiograms, which unfortunately are not a cheap test to perform. Um, that's the major thing. So it's about developing a really good algorithm um, that we could follow if we're gonna do EKG screening. So right now the AHA and ACC don't recommend doing EKG screening. They just want you to do the H, H and P and that checklist that we talked about before. Uh, Europe, FIFA, NCAA, Olympics, uh, they all want EKGs for everybody. Um, again, I'll kind of speed up here because I wanna save a little bit of time for questions as well too, but EKG screening, the moral of the story, um, very, very hot topic, still heavily debated in my world, um, still not a consensus among uh, cardiologists as part of pre-participation screening. There are some good studies that have come out of other places, particularly Europe, where EKG screening um, was shown to work. Um, this was actually slightly different. They did a little bit more screening. This was out of the UK. This is actually a soccer screening for um, about 11,000 elite soccer or footballers there. Mean age was 16.4. This particular study from the New England Journal of Medicine, they did screening with the EKG and echo in the UK. Again, they tend to do a lot more echoes than we do. Um, about 42 adolescents were found to have um, cardiac disease associated with known uh, sudden death. Um, about 225 of those athletes had congenital valvular abnormalities. There's about 23 total deaths. Eight of those were cardiac related and seven of those eights were cardiomyopathy. Um, interesting, six of those eight had normal screening. In the meantime of death of screening was about uh, seven years after the fact. You know, they did talk about in this study that, you know, they may miss a number of patients because some of the kids that have underlying cardiomyopathy may not have the physical or exercise capacity to participate to be an elite athletes. And a lot of these kids and young adults or uh, young teenagers were elite athletes. So they felt that they may have missed some of those patients. Uh, but I'm not going to go through all this, but basically eight died from cardiac causes. Um, the one thing I really, this was also from that journal, the one thing that also stood out to me a lot was that the hypertrophs, the one thing, again, I really stressed, T-wave inversion in those lateral precordial leads. T-wave inversion, now kids are going to have T-wave inversion in their early precordial leads, and they tend to subsequently flip upright sequentially from V4, V3, V2, V1 as they get older, but T-wave inversion in your lateral precordial leads and strain pattern is a big red flag for me. Um, genetic testing not always reliable. So even though we know you may be hypertroph, still had a couple of patients who were genetically uh, negative on there. 
Uh, and bicuspid aortic valve, interesting, this kid with bicuspid aortic valve had a completely normal exam. So bicuspid aortic valve can lead to aortic dilation, uh, which may cause zero symptomatology, which just still may put you at risk for sudden cardiac deaths. So if there's a family history of bicuspid aortic valve, it is recommended that all first degree family members get checked for that as well too, and not just to rely on your physical exam, because you, like I said, you can get aortic root dilation, aneurysm, potentially dissection and sudden cardiac death, all while having a completely normal physical exam. 17 year old with a 53 millimeter root is huge. That needs surgical repair. Uh, EKG screening, this kind of again, talks about what I talked about before. Um, there was a study out of Italy, you know, that um, this is just talking about what the cost would be right here, but they estimated two and a half, three and a half billion dollars. Uh, That'd be about two lives saved per hundred or per a thousand athletes. Um, we gotta get better algorithms and we gotta make it cost effective. But I would love to screen all our young athletes. Um, I think I missed one of, the, one of the studies from EKG. EKG screening works in Italy. I think I might have glossed over that as well too, but that is because they have a higher incidence of ARVC, uh, which can be caught on EKG. So when you look at EKG screening in Europe in particular, it seems that it's much more effective for their young athletes. Those studies have not shown the same effectiveness here in America. Um, this, is a, this is a couple of years old, but uh, CPR, to me, all, if you're gonna be a coach, you should know how to do CPR. It blows my mind that we don't make all coaches, all high school coaches should have to do CPR. And you really wanna save lives, this is it right here. So we need more defibrillators. Defibrillators should be at every athletic event, you know, for the young athlete or for, you never know, for the parents in the crowd as well too. Uh, but more defibrillators, especially when it comes to young athletes, that is what saves lives right there. Uh, here is a number of the studies that I cited today. So if anyone wants to look back at those, right there. And that is my young aspiring astronaut crew right there. So those are my two. And again, my name is Jeffrey Moore. Um, if you guys have any questions about today, if you have any questions about pediatric cardiology in general, if you have any questions about patients, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, Tim and the guys know me. Um, you can call my office. Uh, I'm a texter. Uh, you know, I got a lot of people who text me just want to run stuff by me real quick. Um, I'm always happy to help.